Part of the Rewatching Good Television Podcast Network. It's the Sorkin Cast. Here's your host, Matthew Murdick. Hey there, and welcome to the Sorkin Cast. If it's your first time listening, we welcome you. If you're a returning listener, then welcome back. It's episode 43 of the podcast, where this week we are covering the Sorkin episode, The West Wing, season two, episode 16, entitled Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail. And my name is Matt Murdick, and I am from SorkinCast.wordpress.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find contact links and podcatcher links. And if you could take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher app you use, leave a written review, and I will uh, be sure to take notice of it uh, when we do our next feedback podcast. Speaking of which, if you have any thoughts about any of the Season 2 episodes of The West Wing, you need to get any feedback you have regarding that or your thoughts in by July 12th of 2016 to be included in the feedback podcast, which will also include my thanks for anybody who's left a podcatcher review lately. That is also the deadline to submit your nominations for the West Wing Season 2 awards. At the end of each season, we always try and pick out what our favorite and least favorite episode is. Our favorite and least favorite scene, favorite and least favorite main character for the season, and favorite and least favorite guest star for the season. And we throw that into the final feedback podcast for that particular season that we're watching as well. That deadline, again, is July 12th, 2016. And that's it for the podcast information, I suppose. Let's get to talking about this particular episode This is, again, Season 2, Episode 16, Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail, the longest title of an episode ever. It was written by Paul Redford and Aaron Sorkin, and it was directed by Jessica Yu. It first aired on television on February 28, 2001, and was viewed by an estimated 18.4 million viewers. And Geos... Dot TV, that's the Global Episode Opinion Survey, ranks this episode 36th out of 158 possible episodes. Also, here is your episode summary. It's Big Block of Cheese Day once again at the White House, and while CJ listens to a group of cartographers about how the world map is wrong, Toby gets to try to talk to the World Trade Organization protesters. Meanwhile, Sam spends time trying to get Daniel Galt pardoned for the spy's granddaughter while facing father issues of his own. And the president wavers back and forth slightly regarding the finality of his presidential term. And each and every week we do have a walk and talk, or at least we try to each and every week have a walk and talk, a a section of the show where People are walking back and forth between the office. And I chose Leo and Sam right at the beginning because it really does set up what's going on with Sam and his dad. Oftentimes, the walk and talks happen where people are walking to or from Leo's office. So we don't get too many walk and talks with Leo. You do get a few every once in a while when he's walking with the president or something. But for the most part, Leo doesn't get to be in walk and talks too often. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to put him in this one. You sleep here last night? 
I'm sorry? You slept here? I don't have a couch in my office. Yeah, but you have a bed in your house, right? I need to change my shirt. Maybe you need to go home for a while. What are you doing here so early? Trying to avoid the protesters. Metro police closed a four-block radius around the World Bank and made Pennsylvania Avenue one way from M to 21st. 17th and 15th are closed to Independence Avenue, and Constitution's closed between 23rd and Ellipse. Did you take DuPont? DuPont had two turns closed off with metal barricades and cop cars. So I took P to Logan Circle, which was also blocked. So I made a U-turn and doubled back to get on 16th, where there was a police cordon around the National Geographic Society. Who has a problem with the National Geographic Society? That's exactly what I want to know. Anyway, I'm going to change my shirt. What's going on with the pardon recommendations? Uh, they're coming together. I've reviewed the recommendations from Justice and the OPA, and Tribby's office had its own recommendations. How many are you sending in? 18, I think, now. Mail fraud, securities fraud, and truly the most bogus drug bust I've ever seen. Don't retry the cases. I'm not retrying the cases. I'm reading the material I'm supposed to read. I'm making the recommendations I'm supposed to make. The guy was tried in Spain and found guilty of a crime he was obviously too stupid to commit. Sam, go home, would you? No, I'm just going to change my shirt. You look bad. You're tired. You slept in the office. It's Friday. Go home. Why? Because I think you're putting too much faith in the magical powers of a new shirt. Cleo. Josh told me what happened with your parents. Sam, my father had affairs. Did he? Yeah. My father didn't pick up a cocktail waitress, Leo. He's had a woman in an apartment in Santa Monica. Yeah? For 28 years. How did he get caught? My father, it turns out, is stupider than the guy in Spain. So the real question is, how did he not get caught until now? Yeah. Anyway, I'll see you at the staff meeting later. Sam. Yeah? When did you find out? Tuesday. You slept here the last three nights? No. Seriously, man, go home. No, I'm going to check the final OPA list. In fact, I'll be checking it twice. See who's been naughty, see who's been nice. Sam. Life goes on, Leo. Certainly the federal government does. So, thanks. Let's drop it, okay? Yeah. They're expecting trouble at the National Geographic Society? I have no explanation. Well, those little postcards they stick in the subscription magazines drive me out of my mind, so maybe. Yeah. I'll see you later. It's funny because, really, the only time that Sam's father issue is really addressed is more towards the beginning and the end of the episode. I, I think there is an illusion that Josh is trying to make Sam laugh a little bit about it, uh, kind of in the middle of the episode, but... Other than that, the, the whole father relation thing to Stephanie's thing doesn't really hit until you get right to the end of the episode, unless you really keep this scene that we just did with the walk and talk firmly planted in your mind throughout the whole episode. But just like we have walk and talk each week, we also have what I call quick jabs. They're either personal or political or professional little uh, stabs that the, the cast take at each other. They're basically the jokes of the episode. And here are some from this week's episode. Little thing called team morale, Josh. You gotta make people feel good about themselves. All right, shut the hell up, everybody. I fired more people than you before breakfast. I was waylaid. By what? 30,000 tourists. You know, the protesters. No, I don't call them protesters. I've seen better organized crowds at the DMV. Two tons this block of... 
Police are always seven steps ahead of them. Cops know exactly where they're going to be and what's going to happen. You know how they know? By logging onto their website. We had the underground. We had rapid response. And by God, you were home by supper on a school night. I don't really need to see the 10-year numbers. We think it'd be a good idea to take a look at them, sir. Have the 10-year projections ever been close to accurate? Depends what you mean by close. Within a trillion dollars? No, sir, but we'd like you to take a look at them anyway. Okay. Bring me the 10-year projections, a Ouija board, and a magic wand. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. President. What's requires that all non-housing farm and ranch structures built prior to 1900 be preserved by the owners unless destroyed by an act of God. What plaid, flannel-wearing, cheese-eating yahoo of a milkman governor signed that idiot bill into state law? It was me, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Okay. Those are all great, but the funniest thing for the episode for me was actually something that you can't really get in an audio podcast, and that's when Leo's talking about how Margaret... Uh, worked really hard on everybody's assignments and she's standing behind him and she's shaking her head no i thought that that was very funny uh and again i always give kudos to nicole robinson because she has the the timing to do that kind of stuff not to make it even just the, the funny the way it was but also to make it kind of blatantly awkward which is so margaret as we've gotten to know her as a character over the last couple seasons so far and before we start to talk about the clips themselves i I just want to address this title here more or less i mean this particular don henley song that that this lyric is is taken from uh new york minute uh talks about how perspectives can change instantly and all of that and that that's kind of the the main reason why i got this that particular lyric he plays that verse um a couple of times in this particular show but I really feel like that there's another set of lyrics in the song that the show doesn't really play, but you hear it if you listen to the song, naturally. Like, he had a home, the love of a girl, but men get lost sometimes as years unfurl. That, to me, relates a lot to to Sam's feelings about his father as well. And then you have that whole wolf at the door thing, which is more or less, uh, it pertains to, to Stephanie's father, the hope that he had in regards to her grandfather perhaps not being a spy and and how um, nothing can really change that um, as death approaches him. And I I think that that kind of hits home with Sam as well. It's like, you know, if I, if I don't try and straighten this stuff out with my dad right now, um, who knows if I'll ever get a chance to. Um, So that's kind of a weak analysis of why this song works so well with the title or that the title was named after lyrics in this song. Um, I'm not very good at all that kind of analytical stuff as to why Sorkin would choose that, but it, that's kind of what makes sense to me. And I know a lot of articles have already come out years ago about why this uh, title was uh, chosen and what have you. So you can go and look that up for yourself. I just feel like if I didn't address it, then somebody might at some point tell me, you know, why didn't you address why that title is the way it is? And there you go. That's why I think it is as weak as my analysis is. Hopefully, uh, you give that some thought of your own and maybe uh, write in with your own thoughts as to how you think that uh, this Don Henley song ties into Sam's story this week. And with that, why don't we get to the first clip where Leo kicks off Big Block of Cheese Day and hands out assignments. Donna meets with her friend Stephanie Galt, who needs to ask Sam to look into getting a pardon for her grandfather. And the president is reluctant to proceed with the site for his library for after his term is up. You're not going to give it, right? Sure. Why? 
Because it's Big Block of Cheese Day, Josh. Yeah, see, but we know it's Big Block of Cheese Day, and we know why it's called Big Block of Cheese Day, so there's really no need for the speech. Except it wouldn't be Big Block of Cheese Day without the speech, now, would it? Well, let's find out. Maybe it would. Block of Cheese was huge. Who made these assignments? I think this will go faster if I'm not interrupted, don't you? I'm meeting with the Organization of Cartographers for Social Equality. Yes. What do map makers have to do with social equality? I guess you're about to find out. The block of cheese was two tons and was there for any and all who might be hungry. Excuse me. What's my assignment? World Policy Studies is having a forum. There'll be about a hundred of them. Doing what? Listening to you conduct a free exchange of ideas. Really? Josh thinks it's a good idea. Oh, well, if Josh thinks it's a good idea, then you bet I'll do it. Seriously, Toby, there'll be security there, but still. What about press? Just wires. No, I mean TV. No cameras. You negotiated that? Yeah. They agreed to it? You want to make out with me right now, don't you? Well, when don't I? Give me the thing. Okay, then. Donna, I am getting you out of something, though, right? Nothing. You got me out of the big block of cheese day meeting. Were you able to mention me to Sam Seaborn? I wasn't. I haven't yet, and I apologize. No, that's okay. Sam's just, it's, it's been a bad week for Sam. It's just that, from everything I've been told, the president listens to Sam Seaborn when it comes to... Yeah. I'm not that comfortable that's... with... It puts him in an awkward position if he has to say no, and something like this, if it seems like a favor... Steph, is your dad dying? Okay, listen. When we're in with Sam, mention what you've just said before, that from everything you've heard, he's the man. He'll want to impress you and show you that he's got access to the president. Wait a minute. You're really getting me in to see him? It's really all right? Yeah, it's a big block of cheese day. Sir, I need just a moment to discuss the facts that's coming. From whom? Jonathan Bartlett. That name sounds familiar. He's your brother. Yes. I remember being locked in a steamer trunk. That doesn't sound so bad. There were actual steamers in there with me, Charlie. I was in there with seafood. Okay. Well, here's the thing, Mr. President. We lost the site. You lost the first choice. They'd like a green light to go ahead with the second site. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you, sir. No. I'm sorry? No, don't go ahead with the site. I just... <sighs> Tell my brother to hang on, would you? I'll make a decision. I don't know what the damn hurry is. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? Sam, my grandfather was Daniel Galt. Really? You know who Daniel Galt was? He was jailed for espionage and died in prison six months later. He wasn't put in jail for espionage. They couldn't make espionage. He was put in jail for perjury, for lying in front of HUAC. Sam, Stephanie would like her grandfather included among those being considered for an executive pardon. And from everything I've learned, you're the only person to speak to about this. You have the ear of the president. Yeah. It's impossible to demonstrate remorse since he's no longer alive. Demonstrating his innocence is extremely complicated. But you've already done it. Excuse me? You've already demonstrated his innocence and in an extraordinarily compelling way. You've also spoken eloquently on the need for his pardon. When did I do that? At Princeton. For 23 pages in the middle of your thesis. Where did you get that? You sent it to my father. I know it doesn't seem like there should be much of a rush about getting a pardon for someone who's been dead 50 years, but... Time's become a factor. Your father's sick. Yeah. I, I think I'll just go ahead and tackle this president issue first because a, a lot of the rest of this first clip is a great deal of setup. But I didn't realize until I saw this episode for the very first time 
But I guess that any president, uh, be it a first termer or a second termer, would have to start considering at some point during that term about a library because they like for the libraries to be finished shortly after the presidential term is up. And, and I wouldn't think that it would matter whether you were planning on re-election or not, which seems kind of weird as to how it pertains to Bartlett's own issue here. I wouldn't think that that would matter because you're never guaranteed a second term, even if you want to run. I, I don't know why uh, why it seems like a big deal to everybody that he is considering the library at this point. It seems like that would just be a given since you're never guaranteed a second term. But here, the bigger issue is, of course, whether the president will run or not. And that has to all do with his, his promise to Abby and their talk about it. And what I find is that Bartlett is really kind of avoiding the issue from both sides. He's not willing to really embrace it with Leo, but it doesn't seem like he's really talking to Abby about it either. And instead, he's just kind of stewing it at all. And as Charlie notes later, it's really souring his mood because he's kind of between a rock and a hard place about this at this point. Now, I think that President Bartlett has actually made up his mind that he wants to run. But I do think that perhaps his talk with Abby may have made him take a a little bit of a step back. And I'll address more of that uh, later as we go along when him and Leo talk. But I I just feel like right here, he just really doesn't want even one on his plate at all. He doesn't want to think about having to talk to Abby about running again. He doesn't want to think about having to talk to anybody there about not running again. So um, he's just kind of frozen in place. And that's very unlike Bartlett. Usually he's very decisive. Uh, He knows where he wants to go and everything. And I love that this issue, and maybe it's because there is family involved with it more so than, you know, most of the kind of national or, or international issues that we've seen Bartlett deal with. Maybe that is what's freezing him up about it a little bit. Plus, uh, like I said, there's a little couple of things that Abby talks about uh, in the prior episode that may be weighing on Bartlett's mind. And we'll get to that closer to the end of this particular podcast. Now, as for Sam, the walk and talk, hopefully, that we we played earlier told you exactly why Donna says that he's having a bad week. And really, this episode is, is about Sam losing his faith in, in someone who he's held in the highest regard, being his father, or he thought to be impervious to wrongdoing, and and then deciding how you're going to handle that in the end. Um, and when you look at the result of this episode, I think you can see that Sam comes to some decisions regarding Daniel Galt that are actually directly influenced by his feelings towards his father's affair. So it's a nice journey seeing that all of that blame that he puts on his father at the beginning of the episode seems to be placed onto Daniel Galt himself by the end of the episode. Of course, what he decides to do about it is is another thing altogether, and we'll get to that obviously later. The thing that kind of bothered me um, throughout the course of this episode, and, and we've seen Donna play in this regard, and think it even at the end of the episode, he, he says, you know, why would you think of me that like that, except maybe in a playful way? But Donna is so moved by, you know, the fact that Stephanie's losing her father that she kind of drinks her own Kool-Aid in thinking that Sam's ego would play into him deciding to help 
And I, I felt that that was really kind of a, a prejudice that Donna had about Sam, and, and it disappointed me a little bit. I understand that what Stephanie says is true, that Sam is the guy to talk to about this and everything, but her encouraging Stephanie to to say that kind of thing um, was a little off-putting to me in regards to Donna, because I thought that Donna knew Sam better than that, but evidently she really doesn't. It just seemed a little uncharacteristic for Donna as a character. And finally you get this whole setup of the big block of cheese day. And that's a nice callback to the season one episode, crackpots and these women. And it's a good way to have some continuity for the way Leo does business as well. I'm glad that they brought it up a second season so that Leo could actually, you know, say, Hey, we're doing this again. You know, that this, this is something that this white house is serious about doing, even though it seems like it's a subject matter when they're serious about doing it is never serious, but it's good that they had a, a little bit of humor in this episode to kind of off put a lot of the heaviness and, and really depressing issues uh, that Sam's going through in this particular episode. And they didn't play it up too much like they did in the, the first time around. The first time around, that was the story. This time it was just, again, to, to kind of help counterbalance the the weight of everything else with a little bit of humor, which I thought was good. And the best way to do that is, of course, to do it through CJ's eyes. And we'll get to more of that uh, in a little bit. But first, let's get to the second clip where Toby befriends a police officer at the protest that he has to attend. Sam talks to an FBI agent about Daniel Galt and gets some resistance. And CJ and Josh hear from a group of cartographers about what's wrong with the maps that we all use. Mr. Ziegler? Yes, ma'am. Rhonda Sachs. Ask me to make sure you go home in one piece. You fully trained? Yes. How many different ways do you know to kill a man? How many different ways do I need? I like you. Thank you. Officer Sachs? Yeah? It's going to be a day at the beach. You on the golf thing? Yeah. That's nice of you. Appreciate that. Yeah. I'll give the Bureau a heads up. They're not going to be happy about it. No kidding. Do you know Lincoln signed a pardon on the day he was assassinated? Yeah. Do you know the guy's name? Patrick Murphy. You know what his pardon for? Being a union deserter. Am I annoying you? A little bit, yeah. I was trying to make you laugh. I appreciate that. Can I see your friend at the FBI? Yeah. Can I tell him why? Yeah. Without the cameras, I can sit here, read the sports section for two hours, walk outside and say we talked. So, if you guys want to talk, that's fine, but you're in charge of crowd control. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Folks, people, let's listen up. Good morning. My name is Toby Ziegler, and I'm the White House Communications Director and a Senior Domestic Policy Advisor to the President. Advisor, we need clean air more than free trade. The Bureau's had moments in its past that it's not proud of. I'll bet if we comb through the fine print of history, we might be able to find one or two occupants of the Oval Office who could say the same thing. But the difference is... Our failures are public and our successes are private. So when we apprehend an enemy of the state, like, say, a fugitive member of West Virginia White Pride, we don't take a curtain call on Sunday with Sam and Cokie. When we learned that it wasn't the Secret Service who ordered the canopy down in Roslyn, we kept it to ourselves. Please, God, Mike, please tell me you weren't just threatening Toby Ziegler. I wasn't, Sam. 
good. Yeah. Anyway, because the Bureau will be embarrassed isn't a good enough reason. I'm putting Daniel Galt on the list. I just wanted to give you a heads up. We'd like President Bartlett to aggressively support legislation that would make it mandatory for every public school in America to teach geography using the Peters projection map instead of the traditional Mercator. Give me 200 bucks and it's done. Really? No. Why are we changing maps? Uh, because, CJ, the Mercator projection has fostered European imperialist attitudes for centuries and created an ethnic bias against the Third World. Really? The German cartographer, Mercator, originally designed this map in 1569 as a navigational tool for European sailors. The map enlarges areas at the poles to create straight lines of constant bearing or geographic direction. So it makes it easier to cross an ocean. But yes. it distorts the relative size of nations and continents. Are you saying the map is wrong? Oh dear, yes. Uh, look at Greenland. Okay. Now look at Africa. Okay. The two land masses appear to be roughly the same size. Yes. Would it blow your mind if I told you that Africa is in reality 14 times larger? Yes. Germany appears in the middle of the map when it's in the northernmost quarter of the Earth. Wait, wait. Relative size is one thing, but you're telling me that Germany isn't where we think it is? Nothing's where you think it is. Where is it? I'm glad you asked. The Peters projection. What the hell is that? It's where you've been living this whole time. Should we continue? Uh-huh. So, first, Toby. I mean, you got with the quick jabs and in the beginning of the episode that Toby is kind of an old school, quote unquote, protester. So he's not really impressed with this group of young protesters from the get go. But I like that he finds this officer Sachs because she becomes a great kind of foe for him, a great foil for him in this particular episode. Their jabs back and forth are just fantastic. And you get a little taste of it here in this clip. But here's what's also great about Toby in this particular episode is that he could have said nothing to the group leader at all about the TV or, or the press or whatever. Um, and yet he wants protesters to succeed. Maybe he disagrees with this particular group of protesters, but he wants protests to succeed. And so he's given them a little insights as to what to do better next time. So I love that because he, he's wanting to be, a, uh, a you know a protester himself but he can't be anymore because he's the establishment that they're protesting against so he's kind of living vicariously uh, through this young kid but at the same time he's kind of browbeating the kid too uh, just because the, you know he doesn't agree with this kid on, on the whole uh, WTO issue so that's fantastic now as for Sam you know he's on board now with looking into the Galt thing but what I love is that Josh brings up this this Lincoln pardon thing here. And I know that that was, you know, as they say, it was to try and lighten Sam's mood, first of all, about his dad. But this whole Lincoln thing is something that Sam kind of carries through with him also through the whole episode, especially when you get to his talk uh, with Donna at the end. And I'll, I'll include that part uh, or I'll talk more about that when we get there. But then Sam goes to Josh's friend, this Mike Casper from the FBI and we see, uh, I'm sure what to some of you now are a fairly familiar face, especially if you watch any of the Marvel Cinematic Universe at all. Clark Gregg is um, known as Agent Phil Coulson in, uh, of S.H.I.E.L.D. in either the movies or on the TV show. 
And uh, he's also someone, if you didn't know, who did a guest star appearance on an episode of Sports Night. So here's another case of Sorkin using the same actors for multiple productions of his. Um, now here, Casper comes across as a very resistant person. And I think with good reason, as the episode proves as you go along. But right here, it seems very abrasive. Uh, and you can see why Sam takes some of Casper's remarks as being even a little offensive, especially in regards to the tent and, and all of that stuff. But the thing that I found that was most interesting this watch this time was I don't think that I'd really put much stock in the fact that Sam's name wasn't even on the appointment list for that secretary. And that kind of shows you, I mean, you could say, well, you know, Josh just called him. And so no official thing was made out, but the FBI seems a little bit too thorough for that. And they made a kind of a big deal about the fact that his name wasn't on any list. So I think we're supposed to interpret that in a certain way. And the way that I interpret it is that this golf thing, as far as the FBI is concerned. And of course we learn later, the NSA is concerned. It is so serious that they don't even want, any record of any kind of meeting where questions could be asked about what the meeting was about. This is how serious that they take protecting those ciphers, how serious the FBI takes about uh, not being right about their successes or being, you know, or the fact that they get called out a lot on their failures, uh, which is all stuff that Casper brings up. But, uh, you know, it's important that there's no hard paper evidence that Sam came to see Casper at all because they don't want any information, a possible leak or anything to lead to questioning about why Sam was there or about Daniel Galt because they do feel the need to protect those ciphers later on. And finally, in this particular clip, you have the whole map thing with CJ. And I love that they give this stuff to CJ uh, because Allison Janney is always so good with the disbelief or, or the, the whole thing, you know, just the, the shock, the, the way things come to her. Um, we saw that before in the in, in the uh, previous big block of cheese day in crackpots in these women with the whole wolf thing. Uh, but here, you know, it just, it never stops being entertaining when CJ gets wowed by somebody or, or starts to thinking about something that, that she probably has never thought of before. And the cartography thing is actually a little eye opening when you watch this episode. It is interesting how maps can dictate a little bit of perspective. I think that they get the argument a little bit too extreme later on for it to even, it doesn't, it doesn't quite get as funny because it's just so stupid. Although I don't know, I understand the philosophy behind it, but here at least, at least here, it was as eye opening for me as it was for CJ. I was surprised uh, by my perception just based on looking at a globe. And that's it for this clip. So let's move on to clip three where Toby talks to Sachs about the protesters. Sam hears about the library from Charlie and then is summoned to speak to the National Security Advisor, Nancy McNally, where he is shown proof that Galt was indeed a spy. And finally, CJ gets more map ideas from the cartographers. Look at them. Yeah. Philistines. Take my nightstick and go kick their ass. Yeah, make all the jokes you want, but let me tell you something. They claim to speak for the underprivileged. But here in the blackest city in America, I'm looking at a room with no black faces. No Asians, no Hispanics. Where the hell's the third world they claim to represent? A lot of third worlders in the cabinet room today, were there? You're starting to bother me. That's because I'm armed. No, I like that. I'm going outside. 
Hey, Charlie, what's going on? The president lost his first choice of a site for the library. What happened? There's an 18th century farmhouse they can't take down. They'll find another site. Yeah. Anyway, he's kind of in a mood. They shouldn't be talking to him now about the library anyway. We're not going anywhere for a few years, right? Well, I think that's what's got him in a mood. Yeah. Sam, we just got a call. Ginger, do me a favor and catch the calls. I'm gonna lie down in Toby's office for a few minutes. Sam, it was a national security advisor. Drop Daniel Galt. Nancy. Drop Daniel Galt. Do it right now. Why? Because I just told you to. There was one witness. Sam. Earl Lidecker, a low-level State Department staffer who confessed to FBI counterintelligence officers that he and Galt had conspired to send U.S. economic analysis documents to Soviet agents at the Russian embassy. According to retired KGB Colonel Oleg Prosserov, a search of the files in Lubyanka reveals only one reference to Galt, that he was approached in 1943 and labeled highly uncooperative and a poor prospect for recruitment. Sam, Daniel Galt was a spy. Oh, my God. He was a Soviet spy. Based on what? Diplomatic cables intercepted by U.S. Army signal intelligence in the 1940s. If that was the case, why couldn't the U.S. attorney make espionage in the 1950s? Because the cables weren't decrypted until the 1970s. You're telling me that we cracked some obscure Russian code and suddenly we learned Galt was a spy? Yes. That's crap. If the FBI had proof on Galt, they would have told the world about it. No, they wouldn't have, Sam. Nancy? No, they wouldn't have. Neither would the NSA, neither would Central Intelligence. You don't show someone you've broken their ciphers unless you have to. Galt was long dead. But before he was, he was an agent called Blackwater. He was a delegate at Yalta, and he returned to the U.S. by way of Rostov, where he was awarded the Order of Lenin. Yeah, well, I'll believe that when they show me the file. That's not an FBI file. It's an NSA file. It is, I'm classified, but I don't have code word clearance. I know. So you're not allowed to see that. And you could get into trouble for showing it to me. I can go to jail for showing it to you, which obviously I'm not going to do. I have blacked out any lateral reference that is code word classified. Those are the only things I've blacked out, and they are in no way relevant to your question. Do you believe me? Of course. Go ahead. You're probably wondering what all of this has to do with social equality. No, I'm wondering where France really is. Guys, we want to thank you very much for coming in. Hang on, we're going to finish this. Okay. What do maps have to do with social equality, you ask? She asked. Salvatore Natoli of the National Council for Social Studies argues, in our society, we unconsciously equate size with importance and even power. These guys find Brigadoon on that map, you'll call me, right? Probably not. Okay. When third world countries are misrepresented, they're likely to be valued less. When Mercator maps exaggerate the importance of Western civilization, when the top of the map is given to the Northern Hemisphere and the bottom is given to the Southern, then people will tend to adopt top and bottom attitudes. But wait, how, where else could you put the northern hemisphere but on the top? On the bottom. How? Like this. Yeah, but you can't do that. Why not? Because it's freaking me out. <laughs> but you can't do that. Because it's freaking me out. Oh, I love CJ in these episodes. So especially these episodes where uh, there's a big block of cheese. I will say that... that the turning the map completely upside down that was a step too far for me I and mean, it got into the just the ridiculous nature but i love cj's reaction to it also it's kind of formulaic the way they have cj in these big block of cheese days so far because the whole thing with the wolf highway in the crackpots episode it was funny because she 
uh, at first got some facts that opened her eyes, and then she got some facts that that just totally freaked her out. And the whole highway thing was was really a, a, a ridiculous step, as was this whole turning the map upside down. Although you know, I understand again, I understand the philosophy behind it, um, but uh, the solution just seemed a little bit too extreme for me. And the funny thing is, is that the formula follows through with CJ all the way to the end of the episode, because uh, if you remember at the end of Crackpots, the president and and Leo were talking about how CJ didn't want anything to do with the Wolf Highway or whatever, but yet she was talking about it. And in the same way, Donna mentions to Sam at the end of this episode that, of course, longitude and latitude are not what you think they are. So CJ, no, even if she doesn't go away with any kind of idea that any of the ideas should be approved or whatever, she can't not talk about it. She's got to express herself about what she's witnessed. And I, lo- I love that about CJ. Now, as far as Toby goes, he's still so upset with the protesters, uh, but not really because he thinks they shouldn't be heard, per se. Again, it's his old school self is just kind of in disbelief of how wrong they're doing with their protesting. (laughs) He's got to be a curmudgeon about something. So he's going to he's going to tell them you're protesting wrong. Of course. I do think that his comment about racial diversity is a good one. The protesters perhaps should be trying to, to get message out to the people who are most affected uh, by what they're protesting about. But you have to also respect the fact that these people are at least willing to stand up for these groups. I love that Officer Sachs, once again, she was great with the whole nightstick thing and that pointing out really that there that there's a lot of hypocrisy behind Toby's diversity statement when he looks at his own White House. That was great, I thought. And as for Sam, the, that whole realization that his belief might be wrong, that was just a, a fantastic sequence of, of stuff because you have this guy who's a brilliant lawyer and who has totally approached this thing from more or less a legal standpoint. But it does get into that whole idea of what law is. Is it the search for truth, or is it the search for fact? And I love, love, love Nancy McNally. She's one of my favorite minor characters on this show. And the whole idea of of breaking ciphers becomes, again, the real reason why everyone needs this possible pardoning to just kind of be dropped. I mean, no one wants Russia to ever suspect that those ciphers might be looked into again, is basically what they're saying. And if the president did pardon Galt, I guess that the NSA and and the FBI think that those ears might be raised again. Now, I personally would think that pardoning Galt would actually make the Russians think that, okay, well, there must not be any evidence, and so now they've, they've gone back and do it. But I guess it's the whole idea of the fact that the matter was even looked into that might raise the Russians' suspicions or something like that. And that's why, you know, it's so important for Nancy to get across to Sam that he should drop this. Um, I don't know about the feasibility of actually letting someone with Sam's clearance level look at any kind of document, blacked out or not. I do like the fact that they acknowledge that Nancy was taking somewhat of a risk by showing Sam this. So uh, at least they did give it some weight but I don't know if any actual self-respecting national security advisor would actually go to that length. I guess it depends on how important protecting those ciphers are. And Nancy McNally felt like it, it was a justification for that. And that's fine. That's her call. She's a tough gal. I, I'll, I'll take her word for it any day of the week. 
And that's it for that clip. So let's move on to clip four, where Toby resolves to talk to the protesters. Leo and the president talk, and Sam confronts Donna about Stephanie and the issue at hand. Clothes are cheaper, steel is cheaper, cars are cheaper, phone service is cheaper. You feel me building rhythm here? That's because I'm a speechwriter. I know how to make a point. Toby. It lowers prices, it raises income. You see what I did with lowers and raises there? Yes. It's called the science of listener attention. We did repetition, we did floating opposites, and now you end with the one that's not like the others. Ready? Free trade stops wars. (laughs) And that's it. Free trade stops wars. And we figure out a way to fix the rest. One world, one peace. I'm sure I've seen that on a sign somewhere. God, Toby, wouldn't it be great if there was someone around here with communication skills who could go in there and tell them that? Shut up. Toby, what are you doing here? Came down to see how it was going. How's it going? Just learned. On the sax. Any trouble? No. Josh, the WTO is undemocratic and accountable to no one. Decisions are made by executive directors, and the developing world has little to say about institutional policy. What was that? I protested to you. Why? Because I'm not allowed to get arrested anymore. Let's go back. No. I hate these people with the heat of a Nova. But here I go. Atta boy. You'll find the site. This is how long I get before I have to start with the library. Two years. And the first six months was figuring out how to work the phones. Oh, by the way, they've changed the phones again. Yeah. This is the last job I'm ever going to have. This is the last time I'm going to come to work with people. I swear to God, I feel like I'll be just starting to get good at it. Well, it's two years with an option for four more. Mr. President, is there anything we need to talk about? Not yet, okay? Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, Mr. President. Stephanie's upstairs. I put her in your office because Josh is back. When she said that from what she's heard, I'm the one to talk to, that I have the year of the president, you told her to say that, right? It was... This was so important to her. I I wanted to give her... Yes, I did. I'm sorry. I didn't... I don't know why you would think I was like that. It was wrong. Yeah. Were you able to... He was a spy. You're sure? Yes. No, I mean, it's not possible that he... His code name was Blackwater. He copied by hand State Department, White House documents, and delivered them to the Soviets. They included Sam. Roosevelt's plans to enter the war. You can't tell her. You have to tell her something else. Possible recruitment targets. Sam. What are you, out of your mind? I'm telling her right now. No. No, Sam. Sam, nothing good comes from telling her. The truth isn't good? Not right now, no. The father's not going to live another three months. Let it go till then. I'm not her fairy godmother. She asked me to look into this. I'm saying you wait three months until you're in a bad... Donna? Listen to me. You're in a bad place right now, and you shouldn't make this decision. If you don't tell her tonight, you can tell her tomorrow. If you tell her tonight, that's it. Donna? It was people pushing paper around 50 years ago. Why does it matter? It was high treason, and it mattered a great deal. This country is an idea and one that's lit the world for two centuries. And treason against that idea is not just a crime against the living. This ground holds the graves of people who died for it, who gave what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion, of fidelity. Do you understand the last full measure of devotion to treason against them is... Sam. This girl's going to find out who her father was. Sam. 
He meant grandfather. I love it when Toby gets into speech writing mode. Uh, you don't get to see it too often. Most of the time he's in speech criticizing mode, but when he's actually in speech writing mode for himself, I think it's fantastic. And it's kind of a way for Sorkin to explain to us what is involved in writing some of the great dialogue that he comes up with himself. Oftentimes when I hear Toby analyzing speech or, or whatever, I think to things that I used to do for the Game of Thrones podcast that I do or the Lost podcast that I used to do, where I analyze the music and try and put it into terms where you don't have to necessarily be a, a musician to understand why that piece of music works for that particular scene or something. Um, nonetheless, the way Toby analyzes it made the fact that I'm not very good with grammar. I'm a terrible speech maker. I'm not even uh, a great public speaker of any kind. The only thing I can do in public really with any kind of confidence is play music. But he made me understand why I like certain speeches over other speeches, just with that little analysis that he did there. So I love that. And then he resolves, you know, once Josh gets there, he, he, he basically doesn't want to uh, really address these people anymore. But he, he does so simply for the fact that he, he, he still feels like an old protester himself. And he wants them to succeed, just maybe not on this issue, but he wants to make sure that they have the skills to succeed later on. And I love the fact that it, it's, it's, again, off this Officer Sachs who just pokes at him until he just realizes, yeah, he really ought to do this <laughs> instead of uh, just being standoffish because he doesn't like the way that the, his people are protesting. I don't even know if he has an issue uh, with the protesters' issue anymore at that point. He just doesn't like the way they're executing it. And we still have this whole Bartlett thing trying to avoid his own issue here. And I, I think... He really needs to make a decision with Abby is what it gets down to, or at least get her to listen to his reasoning as to why he wants to run before he can go any further with this about Leo. And it, it seems a little contradictory, I guess, along the lines of, of the way he's acted recently with the State of the Union and, and seemingly being on board with the drop-ins and, and that kind of thing for political scoring. But I think what it really boils down to is that, you know, after the State of the Union address, it, it seems to me that when Abby brought up the whole thing about where he might be in two more years' time in regards to his illness and, and the loss of possible loss of cognitive function, loss of memory, all of these symptoms, he realizes what a huge weight that would be on a presidency you know, on himself as president. And I think that that is kind of what's giving him pause right now until he can really kind of sort through it. I just don't like the fact that he is stuck uh, because this is just not what we're used to seeing from Bartlett. We're used to seeing him be very decisive. But it is a serious matter. And it isn't just a matter, I think, as I pointed out in that podcast where him and I talked uh, it's not just a matter of him thinking of himself and whether he wants to run again. It's a matter of really thinking about what's best for the country if his disease should take a turn for the worse. So you can see that really starting to weigh on him. And um, I I love the performance. I think the idea, uh, you know, in terms of story is, is fantastic. It's just that I love Bartlett so much that it's hard for me to see him be stuck like this, I guess is what I'm saying. 
And then finally you have this bit with Sam and Donna, and I'm glad that Donna did realize just how much she had kind of belittled Sam with that whole ego inflation thing, and she did apologize for it. But I also love how adamant she was in sticking up for Stephanie about basically not telling Stephanie what was going on, because even if she doesn't know Sam well enough to know anything as to the validity of that ego thing, she did understand exactly what he was going through this week with his dad and and personally. And so she was very adamant, uh, especially with that whole thing about, you know, he said grandfather and, and she said, um, you mean, or he said father and she said, you mean her grandfather. And, and Sam here, I, I mean, he's really on a tear. The poor kid, his, his faith is destroyed. Um, he's got a girl who thinks that his ego is more important to him than an issue in Donna. He's got the fact that he had written a, a paper that essentially, in a legal sense, proved Daniel Galt's innocence, and yet he was wrong about that, and he probably is thinking about how close he came to screwing that up. Uh, and all of that is compounded by what's going on with his dad. I mean, he's one of the one person that he's had any real faith in is, is has seemingly not been what he appears. And it's the fact that things are not what they appear, that that's what really gets to Sam. And again, that whole Lincoln thing is brought up and it's something that's been sticking in his mind ever since Josh said it to him and this whole last measure of devotion. Now, there was a part of the clip that got cut out about this female witness that was killed who could have testified that Galt was a spy. Um, and that also pertains to that last measure of devotion and why Sam is so upset. But in essence, um, when it comes down to it, when he starts talking about how he's going to tell Stephanie what her father was like, rather instead of her grandfather, it is that this whole issue with his own dad has really uh, been building up within him. And, and now he just really can't separate the two. And I love that Donna points that out to him, which brings us to this final clip where Sam decides what to tell Stephanie and then finally returns his father's phone calls. Tell me there's good news. Sam? I'm sorry, Stephanie. I wasn't able to get access to the people I needed to have it considered this time around. Why don't you tell your father you'll be able to try again in three months? So, you're open to it? Absolutely. <sighs> That's all he needed. That's all I needed. Did you hear? You should call him right now. Can I use the phone on your desk? Yeah, dial nine. Everyone was right about you, Sam. Sam's the man. It's just there are certain things you're sure of, like longitude and latitude. Sam, I don't know if this is the best time to tell you, but according to CJ, I wouldn't be so sure about longitude and latitude. Hey. You should have seen Tommy. He was good. He blew the doors off the place. Then, uh... I almost got killed. How? I got hit with a piece of a banana. Let's go. You know what you are? You are old school, my friend. Stop talking like that. Let's go. Let me tell you something, though. That was the second time this year I almost got killed, and both times I was with you, so you're going to need a new wingman. You were my old wingman? Yeah. Let's go. Where are you going? 
Toby and I are gonna get Sam drunk and then put him to bed. I'll come. Let's go. I'm gonna meet you there. Yeah? Once again, I, I was really proud of Sam for, for being able to let go of his father thing long enough to see the bigger picture for, for Stephanie and, and her father. He's resolving not to destroy Stephanie's faith in a grandfather or even her father's faith in Daniel Galt. Um, her, so uh, I, I thought that that was great. I also loved that in doing that, he also found the courage to at least talk to his dad. And, and that's a huge step on what will likely be a long or a rough road to repairing his relationship with his father. But this woke him up enough to where he was willing to take the first step because not unlike um, Bartlett ignoring the library thing, uh, had basically just been downplaying and ignoring the issue with his father until it finally came boiling to the surface through this other issue. Uh, and it was good to see Sam and Donna make peace as well. I mean, not that there would be any reason why they wouldn't, but her prejudice about him, I I would think would be a little hurtful to him. So it was good that they seemed to be okay by the end of the episode. And then Josh and Toby come in and and poor Josh, he never gets any of the real fun stuff. Well, get a banana, throw it at him. (laughs) That was funny. Uh, You know, it's called, Oh, he almost lost his life. A banana was thrown at him. Not quite as serious as getting shot, Josh, but I love that he can make that kind of joke when you think about where he's been uh, since the Noel episode. It really, um, you know, he, he's evidently he's doing okay with his PTSD because a situation with an angry mob like that you would think could be harmful to him. But uh, even being able to joke about it, it seems like he's doing better in that way. But uh, yeah, calling Toby old school, just like we've been calling him the whole episode for sure. And I, I love that Toby and Josh's mission now is simply to help Sam feel better about his own issue with his dad. So that was great. Uh, the only thing that I wish that this episode would have had a little more of in regards to Josh, I mean, him sitting in on CJ's meeting was fine. That was great. But I, I wish Leo would give him the most insane meeting of all of them. And we would have seen that because <laughs> Josh can be so bombastic and over the top at times. I just love to see him faced with an absolutely impossible meeting uh, from the uh, big block of cheese day. Um, but anyway, everything gets all fairly well resolved. And it was, again, it was good to see Sam talk to his dad. And I guess that's really all I have to say about this episode. So let's get on to my rating So Geos.tv more or less puts this in the top 20% of the episodes, maybe not quite top 20%, more like top, well, definitely between 20 and 25% of all of the episodes ever made. I'm not sure that I would go that high with this episode. I think it's a really good episode. I think it's great to have our first kind of Sam-centric episode, just like we've had a Toby-centric episode. We've had a Josh 
centric episode. Uh, we've had um, episodes emphasize CJ, but we haven't really had a CJ completely centric episode uh, like this one was very much so for Sam. And Rob Lowe did a great job with it. I thought that there was a lot of good stuff in this episode. My special rating scale kind of dictates where I can go in terms of a solid number, and then I kind of use the decimal points uh, to grade them one way or the other, a little higher or a little lower. Uh, you can find that special 10-point grading scale at sorkincast.wordpress.com, by the way. And this episode fits squarely in the eights by those parameters, and because I think it was a strong performance by Rob Lowe, I'm going to go 8.4, uh, but I'm not going to go any higher than that. Uh, for this particular episode in my rating. And that's it for this week, folks. Next week, an episode that I guarantee you, for me, will be higher than an 8.4. That's Season 2, Episode 17, The Stackhouse Filibuster. Uh, love this episode. Uh, season 2 is just really so strong of the West Wing. It, it really, to me, is one of the strongest seasons of the West Wing out of all of them. Um, and this next com- upcoming episode is no exception. Uh, if you have any thoughts about the Stackhouse filibuster or this particular episode, the, the episode with the longest title ever that was named after a, a lyric in a song, uh, <laughs> and that, that should make it uh, pretty distinctive, right? It's the longest title ever, but also named uh, after a lyric in a song. Yeah. Um, that makes that episode definitely stand out. Anyway, if you have any thoughts about any of the season two episodes, you have until July 12th, 2016 to get them to me. Also, don't forget to, uh, pick out who your favorite and least favorite guest stars, your favorite and least favorite main characters, your favorite and least favorite episode, and your favorite and least favorite scene of season two are as well. If you get them in by July 12th, then they'll be included in our feedback podcast, which will follow up the next week and have our West Wing Awards. You can always send emails to sorkincast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at sorkincast, or you can leave a voicemail if you wish, 314-669-1840. My podcast covering Vikings got lots of voicemails this year, but I've yet to receive a voicemail uh, for the Sorkincast. Be the first. Yeah, be the first. And uh, we would definitely appreciate uh, anything you have to say, and we'll play it during the feedback podcast. Anyway, I've talked way too much, way too long, way too weirdly. So, until next week, bye-bye. Find all of the back episodes, links, and more information at sorkincast.wordpress.com. Leave the podcast a written review at our iTunes or Stitcher store pages. To submit feedback, send emails to sorkincast at gmail.com or call 314-669-1840. The Sorkincast is a member of the Rewatching Good TV Network.